At Global Genes, we know a rare diagnosis changes everything. You weren't given a playbook on how to cope, how to take that next step, and you certainly weren't handed a blueprint on how to build an advocacy organization or successfully bring a therapy to market. The good news is that rare disease advocates are some of the most inspiring, innovative activists on the planet. And Global Genes works to bring the community together to share best practices, create important introductions, and help catalyze powerful collaborations. That's why Global Genes would like to invite you to join us for the fourth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit on September 24th and 25th in Huntington Beach, California. The goal of this year's summit is for patients, caregivers, and advocates to walk away equipped with actionable next steps, whether you've been recently diagnosed or building a disease community, thinking about funding early stage research, actively engaged in developing a treatment, or have been advocating in rare diseases for decades. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2015 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Genome, a quarterly magazine launched in 2014, is an effort to bring an understanding of the revolution driven by new insights into human genetics to patients, their families, and caregivers. It seeks to tackle complex issues in an accessible way to empower medical consumers and help them make better decisions about their own care. We spoke to Jeanette McCarthy, editor-in-chief of Genome, about the magazine, its history and goals, and how the scientific advances it tracks are forever changing the nature of medicine. Jeanette, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about Genome Magazine today. Perhaps you can begin with a description of the magazine for people who may not be familiar with it. Who's the audience? What's the universe of its coverage? And what's the vision of the magazine? What are you trying to do? So the magazine, Genome, is a patient-facing magazine And the goal of the magazine is really to educate stakeholders. Primarily, it's written for a lay audience, so so the stakeholders would be patients or others in in the field, including healthcare providers, really to educate them about what's going on in the field of precision medicine. As you know, this is a rapidly advancing field, and there aren't many um, or if any publications out there devoted solely to this topic, and most people will get their information about genomic medicine from uh, lay publications, maybe the news, maybe uh, magazines uh, other than other than scientifically focused magazines. And, and ours is really an attempt to bring this information to the public in a scientifically sound way. And how did this come about? What was the genesis of the magazine? Well, I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. This was the brainchild of our publisher, Sue McClure. Sue used to be publisher of Cure Magazine, which was a cancer magazine again, patient-facing, all about cancer treatments and and the lives of cancer patients. And she saw the genome revolution coming and really thought that it was time 
for a magazine devoted solely to this topic of genomic and precision medicine. So she's the one who who initiated uh, the idea of the magazine and, and really brought it to life. Well, as a reader, what could I expect to find in an issue of Genome? Well, Genome has stories about different health uh, areas, different diseases, mostly chronic diseases, but some rare diseases as well. Um, we focus not just on clinical applications of genomics, but uh, some research topics, some technology. We touch on ethical issues, policy issues, the, the whole slew of uh, topics that touch on precision medicine. It's interesting to me that you're using the term precision medicine today. In, in the magazine, it seemed to be very conscious about using the term personalized medicine. And I wonder how much of a discussion there was around terminology and, and what the thinking was. Well, it, it's interesting because when I came on board, the name Genome had already been selected. And, and that was great because most of personalized or precision medicine is based on genomics. But we're realizing that it's not just genomics. In fact, the topics that we cover in the magazine include aspects of quantified self, so all of the fitness tracking and, and other uh, mobile health technologies that are coming into play in precision medicine are, are things we cover as well. And, and, of course, the term personalized medicine has been around for a long time, but the term precision medicine is more in vogue now. You heard the president mention it in the State of the Union address, and more people are using precision medicine. So we kind of go back and forth using those interchangeably, but understanding that they're pretty much talking about the same thing. Well, we're in this very interesting time for medicine and healthcare. In many ways, you could see the genome or the sequencing of the genome at the center of all this. How would you describe the fundamental changes in medicine and healthcare from the historic way it's been to, to where we will be, say, in, in 10 years? Well, you know, it's interesting because I didn't know a lot about the practice of medicine, being a PhD myself and not an MD. But really what we're seeing is a shift from sort of diagnosing diseases based on symptoms and instead starting to define these diseases based on the molecular changes that underlie them. And in many cases, that might be changes that occur at the level of the DNA and, and the contribution of our genetic background to not only diseases, but things like drug response and which therapies we might respond to. So I think we'll see a, a fundamental shift in how we uh, define diseases. You're seeing that a lot in cancer now. So you think about cancer and how historically we've defined it by the uh, tissue of origin. For example, we define a breast cancer or a prostate cancer or pancreatic cancer because that's where the tumor originated. But now as we begin to look at the molecular basis of these diseases, we're actually finding some commonalities between different cancers at the molecular level, such that in the future, I think especially in cancer, we will see cancers defined by whether you have a mutation in the ALK gene or a mutation in the BRAF gene or other mutations that are driving your cancer versus the tissue of origin. And treatments will be designed specifically to target those genetic lesions. Our audience is centered in the rare disease community, people involved with a, a group of diseases that to a large extent have a genetic basis. Cancer has been an early beneficiary of genomic insight, but do you see rare diseases being a big and early winner from these advances, or are a number going to work 
are, are numbers going to work against these patients? Well, rare diseases, it's very interesting. Um, of course, rare diseases individually are, by definition, rare, and they're not gaining a lot of attention. But as we know, collectively, they affect one in 10 individuals. And I think as we begin to understand the genetic basis of these rare diseases, we're finding that a lot of the genes involved also happen to be involved in some of the more common diseases that affect people. So I think that you know the technology, the sequencing technologies that we're using now have really um, done a, a great job in, in uncovering the genetic basis for these rare diseases. And that will, in the future, I think, play into some of the more common diseases that, that we're used to talking about. We've had some exciting advances with our ability to edit genes with the development of new technology, CRISPR. There, there's also a fair bit of bioethical concerns about this technology being applied for non-therapeutic purposes. How, how do you see this unfolding, and, and will this open up a new era of gene therapy or, or grind advances to a halt as we fight over this technology? Well, you know, new technologies are coming out all the time that are pushing the, the limits of what we might consider ethical um, in the genome sciences, and CRISPR is no exception. In fact, we're doing a piece on CRISPR, an article on CRISPR in an upcoming issue of Genome. And it really, while the technology itself is exciting and the prospect of being able to fix a genetic defect is exciting, you're right, it, it does push the boundaries on, on an ethical front when you think about uses of this technology for uh, not just fixing deleterious or bad mutations, but rather selecting embryos, perhaps, that uh, have certain genetic traits that we're interested in. And, um, you know, th these are important topics to address. It, this is not new, though. CRISPR is a, one of the, the newer technologies, but the prospect of gene therapy has been around for a long time. And, and so these discussions have been um, had in the past. And I think that I think that will do the right thing. Well, as you alluded to earlier, we're in this era of the quantified self of 23andMe and Jawbones and Fitbits. How do you find patients changing today, they're, they're both in terms of their sophistication and their appetite for information? Well, I think what we're seeing is this gradual shift towards what we call participatory medicine. Patients are becoming more interested in their health care they're realizing that they should and could be um, stewards of their health data. So they're, you think about um, accessing their, their uh, health data through medical records. There are patient portals out there now, and, and patients are beginning to actually see what's in their medical records. They're getting interested in that. They're, they're finding that um, it's empowering to be able to track your own health indices, whether it's through a Fitbit looking at your exercise or your sleep or your diet or one of the uh, slew of um, mobile health technologies out there now, which very soon will allow you to routinely monitor glucose levels, for example, or your blood pressure or use your smartphone to look at your heart rhythm, things like that. So I think patients and, and the general public are interested in their own health and slowly becoming, as I said, stewards of their health data. And the real, the real key will be not just when they can collect their own data, but when they can seamlessly share that with their doctor. And I think that's going to be a real 
game changer in terms of, of health. I recently had a conversation with a CEO of a microbiome company, and, and one of the things we discussed was how patients were well ahead of their doctors in terms of the microbiome. Are, are we at a point where patients are pushing doctors into new areas and pushing them to adopt new science? I think we are. And in fact, I would say that um, for me, for example, as an educator in this space, we're oftentimes in a position where we're pushing physicians to learn new stuff. But what you see is this pull coming from health uh, uh, patients, for example. So you've got this dynamic, you know, you got to push, push physicians along to learn this, this new information. And the patients are actually trying to pull them along as well. And, you know, I think it has to be a multi-pronged approach if we want to move this field forward. And education is a key piece in that. You need to have educated healthcare providers, but patients are the ones whose health is at stake. And so to educate them is equally as important, and they can be a big catalyst for change in, in their healthcare providers. We're also in this moment of time when we've gotten very good at generating data and less so at actionable information. What's it going to take for us to take the information we garner in our genomes and turn that into actionable information? Well, you know, big piece of turning that information into actionable information is really uh, related to sharing data. So think about something like the breast cancer test. So you get your genome sequenced and, and they look at the genes for BRCA1, BRCA2, some of the other high-risk breast cancer genes. And the problem is you will find variants in every person, but you don't know if those variants are actually uh, bad ones or not, if they're the ones that lead to breast cancer or not. And the only way that you know that is by looking at other people to see if they have this gene variant and if they also have breast cancer. And, and really, it's this depth of knowledge that you gain by examining large numbers of people that give you the most um, information about that variant. And so it won't be until we are seamlessly sharing our genomic data that we really get the, the power to determine whether certain variants are actionable or not. So that's going to be a huge piece of the puzzle. Is my genome going to tell me anything today that a good family history and thorough physical couldn't as far as guiding me on how I can improve my health? Yeah, you know, that that's a very interesting question. I, I do believe that for most common complex diseases today, that family history is still a better indicator than any one genetic factor. You know, there are some rare exceptions. I, I mentioned the breast cancer genes, for example. But even among people who have mutations in these breast cancer genes, um, not all of them have a family history. And certainly, most people with a family history don't have these mutations. So I would view them as maybe complementary approaches at this point. But for, for common diseases, I think, I think family history is still going to be an important aspect. Now, having said that, I've had my genome sequenced or... In fact, my exome, which is a subset of my genome. And for the most part, it was pretty uneventful and dull. But I did find a variant in there that, according to certain databases, says I'm at risk for sudden cardiac death. And, and so now, you know, I'm, I'm finding myself doing this sort of uh, looking back at my family history and going through and asking family members, does anybody have a history of heart defects or anything like that? And so it's really interesting how 
it kind of turns the tables around. It's what, what they're calling this iterative phenotyping. You find a genetic variant, and now you go look and see if there are symptoms or biochemical signs that there could be something going wrong. And, and is that an argument for getting your genome sequence or for not doing it? Well, you know, that's that's a personal decision. I think um, a lot of people would say right now that if you're healthy and you don't really have a reason to have your genome sequence, then what's the point? But, you know, having said that, I think that in the future, I, I would say within the next 10, 15 years, genome sequencing will be part of routine healthcare. And if for no other reason, maybe use it as an educational tool so that you understand, you know, this is what's in my genome. Um, these are the limitations of what we know today. Uh, and, and you may find something interesting in there, maybe not. I think, uh, you know, if you have certain health concerns, you have a strong family history where you think genetic testing might help, then having your genome sequence might be useful. Um, if you have, certainly if you have a rare genetic disease, as, as we see with, uh, you know, global genes and other rare disease groups, um, patients with rare, rare diseases are oftentimes uh, found to have a genetic genetic aberration as well. So finding that, even though there might not be a cure, is, is an important thing. Genome can be found at genomemag.com, and if you go there today, you can get a one-year subscription for free. Jeanette McCarthy, Editor-in-Chief of Genome. Jeanette, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. If you'd like to learn more about Genome and meet Jeanette McCarthy, join Global Genes for the fourth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit, September 24th and 25th, in Huntington Beach, California. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2015 summit. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.